that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was a woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Thanks, Robin. Good morning, everyone. Keep your Bibles open. There's a outline on the leaflets for that sermon passage. Uh, just so you're aware as well, uh, we do actually have a number of questions. I saw a few puzzled looks when Cameron announced that there was a question SMS line, but no SMS number. I thought, yeah, that'd be a, actually quite a convenient way to do it and not get any questions. But no, we do actually have a question. So whenever the screen's blank, that phone number will be up there. So feel free to text your questions through. My name is Mark. If we haven't met, I'm on the staff team here at Trinity Church Brighton. Um, as you can probably imagine, this is one of the more divisive passages in the Bible. Um, I think we'd all agree that reading, particularly verses 11 to 15, reading that straight into our modern day context, it's, it's quite jarring, isn't it? There's a, a couple of reasons for that, I think. The first reason is the social progress that women have made. If we compare our culture in the here and now to the, the culture that this passage was written into. I realise there are parts of the world where this progress hasn't happened. But if we think about 21st century Australia, women are allowed to vote, uh, women get into high-powered jobs, and shock horror, they're actually just as competent at them as men are. And the second reason that these verses can make us uncomfortable is the abuse of male power. The last year or so, we've seen the Me Too campaign uh, we had the, the murder of the young woman in Melbourne a few months back, which um, certainly sparked a bit of a response. And countless other examples of men abusing our power. Now, as a man, I think I'm a bit desensitised to this at times, just because it's not as close to my reality. But I know that as an adult, I've never been afraid going out in the dark at night, whereas Alicia, that's not the same for her. At all, So I'm just conscious that uh, the male perspective and the female perspective of all this is quite different. Uh, so a passage like this 
raises questions, doesn't it? Uh, Perhaps you're here this morning, not a follower of Jesus, just curious, checking church out, and you'd probably admit that there are some good things about Christianity, Uh, but a passage like this just confirms that it's an outdated and a sexist religion. Is there anything I can do about this sound or too close to my mouth? Anyway. (laughs) Perhaps particularly if you're a woman, a passage like this raises questions about whether God values me, whether God really loves me. So it's important that we read this chapter in its right context and make a distinction between things that are particular uh, to a particular social time and context and things that apply for any church, any time, anywhere. As we do that, I hope that we can come to a clearer understanding of verses 11 to 15, but also uh, to keep our eyes on some important things that are in verses 1 to 10 as well. Uh, We saw last week in chapter 1 that Paul is writing this letter. He's writing it to Timothy, who has been given the job of reforming the church in Ephesus. Uh, This is a church that had been affected by false teaching. Uh, We saw that the key verse here is chapter 3, verse 15, uh, where the church is described as God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So the church is a family that is growing in Jesus together and on mission for Jesus together and displaying the truth of the gospel to the surrounding world. That's really the big picture of 1 Timothy that we see here. The church is a family growing in Jesus, on mission for Jesus and displaying God's truth to the surrounding world. In chapter 1, we saw that the church exists to celebrate and advance this great news of the gospel that Jesus came to save sinners and to offer us eternal life. So Paul turns his attention in chapter 2 to how the church actually practically goes about advancing the gospel, what it looks like. Uh, You should have an outline in front of you in the leaflets there. You can see that the the main headings for it are verses 1 to 7, mission that starts on our knees. So talking about prayer and the centrality of that. Uh, Verse 8, we then see Paul's instructions for men, and verses 9 to 15, his instructions for women in this passage. And so Paul is turning his attention to how the church goes about advancing the gospel. And the first instruction that he gives is to pray, to pray for all people. Why does God want his church to pray? Which because, verse 4, we see that he wants all people to be saved and to come to know the truth. God is on mission, and he's on mission through his church. And it's a mission that starts on our knees in prayer, praying for God to be at work as we declare the good news that we saw in chapter 1, that Jesus came to save sinners. Verse 2 there is talking about people in positions of secular authority. So particularly for us today, our government. And given recent events, I'd say that probably the need to pray for our government leaders has become a bit more evident if it wasn't already. It's always appropriate for us to pray for our leaders, uh, that they would govern in a way that honours God and helps the gospel to advance, even if those leaders aren't believers themselves. Not just for our leaders either, but for leaders all over the world, the government leaders in all countries, uh, that they would lead wisely. 
particularly also for Christian leaders as well, that they would lead wisely, that they would govern in a way that reflects well on the faith that they profess. Uh, So Scott Morrison, our new PM, by all accounts, is a man who follows Jesus. We should pray that he governs in a way that reflects that, that he should govern in a way that adorns the gospel in Australia. Jesus is described in these verses as both a mediator and a ransom. So we saw the the ransom side of things with Wuffle. I was a bit disappointed. I was looking to see what Wuffle had to say about gender roles in the church, but didn't didn't quite happen. So a mediator is someone who helps to mend a broken relationship between two people. And a ransom is a payment that is made to free someone who's in captivity, which we saw with Wuffle. Why do we need a mediator and a ransom? Like, you can imagine if, if I came up to, to two people, say if I came up to Joel and Alio and I said, look, you guys, I'm going to mediate between you, okay? I'm, I know there's been a bit going on, so I'm going to be happy to mediate between you. If things are going well between you, you'd say, well, we don't need a mediator. Things are great. I hope things are good between you, by the way. I should have asked you that beforehand. And the same, same thing as well, like if I'd, if I'd read that ransom note and then I'd looked inside and Wuffle was in there safe and sound, what's the point of a ransom if there's no one in captivity? Well, it's because of sin. Sin is something that we're captive to. We can't free ourselves from it on our own. We can't avoid its consequences on our own. And sin is something that comes between us and God. Because really, sin is us wanting to do things our own way rather than God's way. And so Jesus came to be a mediator between us and God, to give himself as a ransom for all people. And he did that by dying on a cross so that anything that we've done wrong can be placed on him so that he can take the punishment, not us. The ransom amount that we could never have paid ourselves. He's paid it. The relationship with God that we could never have restored on our own, he's restored it. God has gone to all lengths to save us by bringing us back into relationship with him through Jesus, sending his own son to die for us and raising him back to life. Because God wants all people to be saved. And that's why Paul was appointed as a herald and an apostle That's why the church is on mission. See, God is on mission. And so the church is on mission as well. And that mission begins with prayer. Because there's nothing that we can do on our own to bring people to trust Jesus. It's only when God works in someone's heart by his Holy Spirit that they come to believe. But God uses us in the process And by making prayer a priority, um, we're showing that we depend on God every step of the way in making and growing disciples. God wants us to pray in line with his desire for people to be saved. And that shapes the way that we pray in church. It shapes the way that we pray in our growth groups. It shapes the way that we pray in our own personal lives as well. So if you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, what's your evangelistic prayer life like? Do you regularly set aside time in your day, in your week to, to pray 
for the people in your life who don't yet know Jesus, but who you'd love to see come to know Jesus? What about our growth groups? When we're meeting in our growth groups each week, is that a time when evangelistic prayer is happening? Would the other people in your growth group know who the people are in your life who you would love to see come to know Jesus? Now, I'm not saying that unbelieving friends and family are the only thing that we should ever be praying for in church and in our growth groups. But we see here that it should be a high priority for us. And if it's not a priority for you, can I ask, why not? Is it because you don't care about the people in your life who don't know Jesus? Or is it because you don't think that God will do anything? I think I can fall into both of those traps at times without realizing it. Life throws a lot of things at us and we can really lose sight of the gravity that people's eternity depends on the decision that they make about Jesus. And it's discouraging, isn't it? When we, when we pray for someone for years and years and years that they would become a Christian and, and nothing seems to happen. So these, these are two barriers that we have to push through in our evangelistic prayer lives. For example, I, I pray for my brother every day that he will become a Christian. Am I convinced that his eternity hangs on whether he accepts Jesus? Yes, absolutely. Do I think that God can save him? Definitely. Do I know that God will save him? No, I don't. Will I still be praying for him in 50 years' time if nothing's changed? I hope so. God has called us to be part of his mission. And it's a mission that begins on our knees in prayer. Uh, so we then see in... Uh, sorry, go back slide. We then see in verses 8 to 15 that Paul gives instructions both for men and for women. And the instruction for men is to lead the way in prayer. Now, this is connected to what we've just seen in verses 1 to 7. Paul gives these instructions about prayer. And then he says in verse 8, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray. See, prayer is a vital part of the mission of the church. And Paul is saying to the men, make sure it happens. Don't let anger or disputing or anything else get in the way. Make sure that the church is dependent upon God in prayer. See, the more, the more I read this chapter as a whole, the more I'm convinced that it's not so much trying to restrict women as lay down a, a challenge for Christian men. Now, perhaps the, the men here were failing in Ephesus to lead the church well. Now, thinking about the, the topic of gender roles in the church, I think it's helpful to consider how the church is likened to a family throughout the book of 1 Timothy. Now, I've seen the, the key verse, chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, the church is referred to as God's household, so God's, God's family. Uh, chapter 3, verse 5, we'll look at this a bit more in depth next week, but the role of somebody leading the church is likened to the role of leading a family. So Paul basically says, if a man can't lead his family, well, what hope has he got? of leading the church well. Then in chapter 5, the family imagery comes out most strongly when Paul urges Timothy to treat all the members of the church as family members. And so church is a family. 
in the book of Ephesians, another letter that Paul writes, he makes it clear that the husband is to be the head of the family. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. And so if the church is, if you like, the extended family of God, then it makes sense that God expects men to take the lead in the church as well as the family. And so if men have been given a responsibility to lead, are we taking this seriously? Are we men of prayer? Are we disciplined in in making sure that prayer is happening in our lives, in our families, in our church? Uh, For men who are married, are you leading your wives and children in prayer? Are we taking responsibility for the family prayer happening? And if not, what changes are needed for us to be able to honor God in this way? You see, whatever this passage says to women, it lays down a serious challenge for men as well. Which brings us to verses 9 to 15 and the instructions that Paul gives with regard to women in the church. First instruction there is in verses 9 to 10, that women should dress modestly and not in a distracting way. Now, perhaps um, in that time, in that place, women had been putting so much um, effort into their appearance that it was taking attention away from God. Now, this passage is in the, the context of worship, so it's talking about first and foremost, what women are wearing when we come together to worship God. The passage isn't saying that, as a general rule, women cannot have nice clothing, uh, jewellery. It's not saying that you can't wear your hair nicely. It's not saying that you can't put makeup on. Um, I think we'd all be slightly disappointed if we went to a wedding and the bride walked down the aisle in trackies and a hoodie and a baseball cap. Don't want to offend anyone if that has happened at a wedding you've been to. But it's not the norm. So what this passage is saying is that what should be most obvious about you is not the clothing that you wear, not the the brands that you wear, not the way that you do your hair. What should be most obvious is your relationship with God and how that shapes every aspect of your life. Then we come to verses 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, there are different views about what's going on here. There's debate about whether this is a universal rule that Paul is giving, that in any time, any place, any church, women should not teach men, or whether it's a very specific situation that, that, Paul, is, that Paul is addressing here. It's people who take it to be a very specific situation um, will tend to suggest that um, perhaps women had been led astray by the false teaching that we saw was going on in this church and um, that they'd followed that and that they were defying the men who were in leadership at that time by teaching this false teaching. And so in that case, what Paul is saying here is that women shouldn't assume inappropriate authority. They shouldn't teach inappropriately. A lot of people hold this view. There are some, some well-made arguments for it. Um, but the evidence for it isn't clear. There's a, there's a lot of speculation behind it. And I think it makes the mistake of inserting our thinking into the Bible uh, rather than seeking to understand what God is saying. 
the plain meaning of these verses is that women should not have teaching authority over men in the church. In verse 13, Paul grounds his argument in God's creation. He doesn't just make this argument one-off. He actually uses God's creation uh, to back up what he's saying. So God made Adam before he made Eve. And so right from the start, um, he was establishing male headship in creation. Uh, Verse 14 might sound as if Paul is blaming Eve for being deceived and for being the one who was responsible for sin entering the world and using that as the basis for female submission. So almost as if to say that women are more easily deceived than men. I don't think that's what's happening here. If you if you look at Romans chapter 5, you see that Paul very much lays the blame for the fall on Adam just as much as he, as he does on Eve. So there's no blame game or anything going on here in that sense. The thing is, though, Adam was meant to lead Eve, and he failed. And so in verses 13 to 14 here, Paul is using both creation and the fall to prove that God's design is for men to take the lead in the family and therefore in the church as well. We then have this comment in verse 15 that women will be saved through childbearing. So as if the the passage wasn't complicated enough, it just adds this one on there as well. Now, some people have taken this as a reference to Jesus' birth. Jesus was born to a woman and Jesus saves us. I kind of think that would be a, a strange way of wording it, a very, very roundabout way of wording that, if, if that's what Paul meant. More likely, I think, what, what's happening here is that childbearing represents the role of women as a whole. Now, not every woman will bear children, um, but childbearing is, if you like, the definitive act of womanhood in the sense that it's the one thing that a man will never, ever be able to, be, to do. And so Paul is saying to the women here, be women of faith, women of love, women of holiness. God has made men and women equal, uh, but he's made them different. He's made them with unique roles. And he's given men the role of headship within the family and within the church. It doesn't make men any better or any more important or anything like that. And the reason for that is because the headship only has worth when that man is submitting to God's authority. Okay, so where does that leave us practically? How can women lead in the church and how are they restricted in the church? Well, I'd argue that this passage restricts a woman from being the senior pastor of a church. I'd also argue that the vast majority, if not all, of the preaching in the church with men and women present should be the responsibility of men. Those are the two clear roles where there's there's a clear level of teaching and authority in view. Outside of that, though, there is a lot of important ministry for women to be doing. And as a church, we're blessed to have a number of godly women who lead us in so many ways like that. Uh, Robin, who just read the Bible for us, is a valuable member of our leadership team, Uh, Lauren does a great job leading the children's program. She's got a a number of great male and female leaders who work alongside her there. Val Bulls is an absolute pastoral care machine. She does things that I would never be able to do. 
Lauren Hull, who we just heard from, does an amazing job at Flinders Uni. We just heard some really encouraging things about Lauren's ministry. She does a great job there, ministering particularly to, to some of the younger women there. Uh, Shana has been given linguistic abilities that exceed mine by, I don't even know how to explain it, many, many times. And God is using her to take the Bible to people who have never been able to read it in their language before. Those are, those are just a few examples. So the last thing that this passage is saying is that God has no use for women in ministry. That is the last thing we're seeing here. I'd suggest also that this instruction for women not to teach and not to have authority over men, it isn't an issue if men are leading well, if men are submitting to God's authority. I think it's, it's a very different argument compared with whether women should be allowed to vote or whether women should have equal employment rights or whether women should have the right to walk home safely at night because those things are individual concerns. They're personal concerns and very valid ones, I might add. But the church doesn't have individual goals. We have corporate goals, specifically the goal of advancing the gospel, of making and growing disciples for God's glory. God wants people to be saved and he's given men and women unique roles in the mission of the church. So what about those questions that I flagged at the start? Firstly, is Christianity outdated and sexist on the basis of something like this? Well, in a hundred years' time, people are going to look back at secular Australia in 2018 and think that we were outdated and sexist. See, our views won't stand the test of time, just as the views of previous generations haven't. But the Bible's view is grounded in God's good creation by the one who made us, who loves us, so that we might flourish and that he might be glorified through us. Secondly, does God love and value women? Well, I could answer that by pointing to just how revolutionary Paul and indeed Jesus were in how they treated women, how they treated women with great dignity, they included them in their mission, they included them in their writings in, in a way that people just didn't do at that time. But the true measure for how much God loves us, and whether you're a man or a woman, is the cross. God sent his own son to pay our ransom by his death in our place so that we could be reconciled with him and that we could have the hope of eternal life. Now, I realize that there still may be some big questions coming out of this passage. I'm not convinced that I've answered all the questions in the world in 25 minutes. So we'll have the Q&A panel in a moment. I might, might get Cameron and Lauren to, to make their way up for that. Um, I'm more than happy to chat to anyone afterwards as well. I'm sure Cameron and Lauren both would be as well. On our website, you can find a sermon that Colin did on Ephesians chapter 5 last year, which um, talks a bit about the, the male headship. And there's also one that Cameron did this year, I think about May this year, on 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, that also sort of deals with the, the male-female power balance in the church as well. We've been created by God as men and women to, to serve God 
in different ways. And this flows out of God's desire for all people to be saved. The church is on mission because God is on mission. We're a family on mission for Jesus together. And as men and women, we both bring our unique gifts to that mission. I might invite Cameron and Lauren up now. And I might, uh, might give Lauren this microphone. Cameron's got the phone, so he can ask questions to anyone he wants. And we'll see how we go. We didn't rehearse this because we didn't have the questions beforehand, but we'll, we'll see. They're coming in thick and fast, guys. <laughs> Where do we start? Uh, here's one from Telstra. Did you know that by recharging... No, sorry. <laughs> here's a question. I'm going to throw this one to Mark. Uh, is there anything that women can do in church that men aren't permitted? Um, not... From what I'm aware of, not in the same sense that we see here. I mean, this is a fairly explicit command. I think there are certainly general areas of ministry that women are much better suited to. Like, for example, Lauren's job. I would not be qualified to catch up with young women during the week and, and disciple them and minister them in the faith. So I think it's, I don't know what chapter, it's in Titus somewhere. There's Titus 2, that's why you're up here. Titus 2, um, there's, a, there's a clear instruction for the older women to, to teach the younger women, for the older men to, to teach the, the younger men. And so I think there's, there's that pattern where women have a vital role in having that close discipleship. Like I can preach a sermon that um, the women here listen to, but that, that one-to-one discipleship, that really close relationship stuff is much better served by older women, I think. So I'm very thankful that there are people like Lauren who perform those roles. Here's one uh, for Lauren. Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gloss this a little bit and expand it because it's a really good question. Um, Lauren, how do you feel knowing that you aren't permitted to give a sermon in this church? Like, do you feel devalued, not loved, not respected, not able? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, and thank you for asking me. Um, because this, this does feel personal uh, and it does, it does bring up feelings. Um, as someone who's theologically trained, uh, who's been trained to preach, um, I guess I, I'm skilled and equipped to stand up here and give a sermon. Uh, and yet, uh, in this context, uh, based on our, our reading and understanding of passages like 1 Timothy 2, um, our, our congregation here has, has decided that uh, it's men who will be up here giving the sermon. Uh, look, uh, for me, uh, what is most important is that the Bible is being faithfully taught. Uh, and that's why I decided to come to Trinity Church Brighton when I moved back from Melbourne uh, and started work at Flinders ES because I wanted to be at a church where the Bible was being taught faithfully. And so for me, um, whether I could get up in the pulpit or not uh, was not um, my priority. My priority was that whoever was up here uh, was faithfully teaching me the Bible week in, week out. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, one thing I think I'd just add to that is we have to expect if the Bible speaks over culture, is going to cut across every culture at various points. Uh, and while we look at a passage like this and go, oh, this is so conservative and I find this so difficult to deal with because of our cultural background, there will be other points where in other cultures they would look at some of the Bible's teaching on maybe this or other issues and flip around the other way and say, wow, women, you know, 
they're allowed to do so much, you know, it, it, there's so much that's a cultural sort of thing, and we need to recognise that. And in light of that, I'm going to ask Mark this question. We're not going to answer I've got more questions here. <laughs> Maybe I'll give Mark some homework, and he can write an answer to all of these uh, this week. Uh, if we assume certain instructions are purely cultural, so you referenced the, the cultural kind of argument uh, around Ephesians, uh, uh, what was happening in Ephesus, sorry, where, where Timothy was. What's stopping us from claiming other instructions are cultural and therefore undermining the authority of the Bible? So basically, if I say, I don't have to follow this because it's cultural, well, we can make everything cultural. We don't have to follow anything. So how do you answer that, Mark? Yeah, good question. And the arguments that I've heard in favor of women being able to preach often points to chapter three, where it says that a an, an overseer must be a husband of but one wife and look at that and think, well, what about single people? Should Can a single man um, be able to be an overseer? And they, they point to that as being contradictory. I think for me, the, the fact that in his argument, he's grounded it in creation is the big thing there. I think if he'd, if he'd made the one-off comments, then you could probably take the, you could probably do a bit of homework on what the, the situation was in Ephesus and try and sort of work out, okay, that there might be some, some contextual explanation here. But the fact that he's actually gone straight to creation um, as the basis for his argument for me is actually saying this is, this is more than just a, a slight contextual detail. This is a big picture uh, that God is establishing here, and it's one that has been established... Uh, right from the beginning of creation. No. Um, what I'm going to do is, uh, I'm half serious about, uh, actually I'm fully serious about us looking at these questions uh, and actually maybe preparing some answers for you in more full, just recognising that I've got a whole screen and then some uh, of questions and really good questions. Uh, if this is something that's helpful, we'll keep doing this and we'll keep answering questions because I think it's important that we engage. Um, one of the tricky things... I, speaking for myself and just drawing to a, a close, I think the Bible is fairly clear on what it says. The challenge, I think, is actually working out how to put it into practice uh, in our culture in a way that is faithful to Scripture and in a way that is not just transplanting first century Greco-Roman, you know, Roman Empire culture into our culture and pretending that everything is the same. Uh, I think there is some very prayerful, careful consideration that needs to be done. Uh, and so uh, thank you for your questions. We will answer them. Thank you, Mark, for dealing with a tricky question. But we are now going to spend some time in prayer. So I'm going to pray. These guys are going to go back to uh, their seats, and then Jeff is going to come and lead us uh, in, in prayers more generally. Father, we thank you for this word. Uh, we know it is hard. Uh, we know it cuts across some really deeply held uh, convictions that, uh, that we have, that our culture teaches. And Father, it also hits uh, some really uh, sore points, some really uh, rough points in our lives where we find that we uh, may have been on the wrong end of authority, particularly I pray for my sisters here who maybe have been subjected uh, to the abuse of male authority. And Father, uh, we do pray uh, that uh, you would help us to discern uh, your truth, your blessing, uh, in this and father that you would give us sensitivity that we would be a culture uh, within your community your household here uh, that shows forth your love and value for all people and shows forth your truth in the way that we relate to one another 
And Father, we pray that we would keep wrestling with your word and that by your spirit, you would lead us into your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeff's now going to lead us in a time of prayer.